This week we're going to step out of order a little bit in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Pastor Matt has been working through uh, the, the, the book of Mark, and uh, we've come to Mark 13. Um, and last week he started on that, and that was part one. Part two is coming. This week we're going to skip to uh, chapter 14 for a couple of reasons. One, Mark or, or, uh, Pastor Matt already preached Mark chapter 14 in the not-too-distant past, and so he wanted someone else to have a different take on it. And number two, I didn't want to try to dig into the prophetic part of Mark chapter 13. Pastor Matt's going to do a great job with that, and I look forward to what he says next week. But actually, Mark chapter 13, many scholars believe, is unique in its placement in the book of Mark. It's an apocalypse. It's talking about the end of things and future events. And it comes right before the grand finale of the story of Jesus. In chapter 13, Jesus describes the lowest point his followers are going through. And then in this very next scene, they're dealing with that message. Jesus has been saying for chapters that he's going to Jerusalem, the leaders aren't going to like it, and they're going to kill him. He has not minced words. But his followers just can't see that. They can't perceive that their best friend, their mentor, the one they've left everything for, is really going to die. Chapter 13 says, I'm going to die, things are going to get bad, and you need to hold on. And now the action starts. And it starts in a little town just east of Jerusalem in Bethany. In this opening of the final week before Jesus' death, we see two characters in contrast. One that is faithful to the end, and one that betrays Jesus in the end. So if you have your Bibles, open to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, and we're going to read verses 1 through 11. Now, the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining in the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why waste this perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you don't always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, whenever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to portray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money, so he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Mark is using this structure that he's used before to highlight a theme. He starts with a scene, then he quick cuts to another scene, and then he comes back to that first scene again. It's kind of a, a sandwich structure. It's used to contrast the attitudes or actions of the people in the scenes and kind of highlight a primary theme. 
In verses 1 and 2, we get this scene of the Pharisees and the scribes, and they're looking for a way to kill Jesus. They're nervous. Jesus just made his entry into Jerusalem, and there are throngs of people shouting, Hosanna in the highest. These leaders know Jesus is popular, and they know the only thing worse than a popular person is a popular martyr. So they want to get rid of Jesus, but they don't want to do it during the festival, or the people might have a riot. Now, don't get them wrong here. They're not concerned about the people at all. They're concerned about a riot and that they might lose control. During this time, it's the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's actually two festivals that, in popular notion, has kind of been combined into one. The Passover part takes place in March or April. For example, this year, March in, it'll be March 27th in 2021. And it commemorates when God passes over the Israelites as the plague of the death of the firstborn swept through Egypt in the days of Moses. On this holiday, the people of Israel would gather to Jerusalem to commemorate that day. And the city would swell from 50,000 people to a quarter of a million people for this week of festivities. That's the first day. And then there is the seven-day Feast of Unleavened Bread. That commemorates how Israel ate unleavened bread as they exited Egypt by the mighty power of God. For seven days, there's no leavening anywhere in the house of the Israelite. So these two festivals, these two feasts, kind of come together into one celebration that makes Jerusalem into a madhouse. There are people everywhere, and the city swells. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees, or the, the Pharisees and the scribes, are concerned about this group of people. Now, if Passover starts on Thursday, then this scene is either taking place Tuesday or Wednesday, depending on how you reckon two days away. But Mark here is pointing out the time, and he points out the time in his story in order to emphasize that something is important. So he's emphasizing that the time is short, that things are going to start moving fast. Cut to the next scene. Now we're in Bethany, in the home of Simon the leper. We don't get much information about who this person is, Simon. Matthew 26 and John 7 have parallel tellings of this story. And uh, the story in John says that this is in the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Now they happen to also live in Bethany. It's a little confusing on what might be going on here. Most scholars think that these are actually the same story. Uh, but just the, the way that they're describing where it is is a little different. Perhaps um, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived in a home owned by Simon. I, I don't really know how this works. Um, it's hard to say, but these stories are in parallel. In any case, they're socializing. They're in this home, and uh, they're around, uh, not really a dinner table, but tables in the ancient Near East were kind of low to the ground, and, and you, would uh, you would recline at this table. So the people are reclining around the table, and this meal is taking place, and it's a celebration. It's a time for people to socialize. It's not just kind of a quick bite. As they're socializing this way, around this table, here comes an unnamed woman that has an alabaster vial of perfume. The picture up there is something like that. It's, it's the sealed alabaster vial. It's called uh, pure nard. That might be just a description of the kind of oil that it is. It was perhaps an aromatic oil from a plant found in India. And it's sealed 
so this is like a, a one-time use. In order to get at the oil, you have to break the vial. Mark says it's very expensive. Uh, the NIV says it's a year's wage. Uh, the other translations say it's 3,000 denarii. Uh, and the NIV gets that right. It's like the life savings of this woman. Something she could fall back on. She carried, because they didn't have bank accounts back in those days, and certainly not for women, so she would carry this very expensive perfume with her, and this was her fallback. This was her security. This was her 401k, and she carried that with her. Now, don't rush past this fact. This was basically all she had. She's emptying her life savings. She's cashing in her CDs. The ending scene of chapter 12 also has a similar scene, an unnamed widow putting her last two copper coins in the temple treasury. These two unnamed women acting in faith despite the cost in total dependence and devotion to God. Jesus looks at their simple act of faith and imbues it with greater significance. See, there's this widow, this unnamed widow that gives her two copper coins, and Jesus says, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. And of this unnamed woman that has given her life savings in perfume, Jesus says, she poured perfume on my body for burial. I don't know if these two women understood the significance of what they were doing. The widow certainly doesn't portray that she knew she was giving more to the treasury than anyone else. She was just simply giving her two copper coins. And this unnamed woman that broke this vial of perfume to anoint Jesus' head um, likely didn't know what she was doing. She was just doing a faithful act of service. I think both these women were just performing faithful acts of service. See, Jesus isn't looking for grand gestures. He's calling out simple acts of faithfulness. See, the world looks at a gift, and the way that they determine its value is by the stature of the person giving or the amount that they're giving. We hear all about the millions of dollars that are given here and there, but we don't hear often about the two copper coins that are given. We don't often hear about the small acts of service. The world looks at the amount. Jesus looks at the heart of the giver to see the true value of the gift. Now look how the disciples react to this woman's act of faithful service in verses 4 and 5. They're indignant. They murmur to each other. When witnessing an act of faithful service, they can do nothing but judge. And this, their judgment, seems completely reasonable. I mean, yeah, that vial of perfume would have cost a lot of money. There were plenty of poor people. They could have sold that. They could have given that money to the poor. They could have done so much with it. Listen, your faithful act of service to Jesus needs to have no value from anyone else. People will look at your faithful act of service and they'll say, what a waste, just like these people did. What a waste of your talent to be playing in the church band when you could be playing for crowds. What a waste of time to be hanging out with teenagers at youth group that won't listen to you anyway. 
What a waste to be giving money to missions in an Islamic context where they won't have one follower follow Jesus. What a waste, the world will say. That's what people will say. But Jesus looks at the acts of faithful obedience, faithful service, and he gives them immeasurable value. Jesus says to the naysayers, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. Let me ask you this. Who do you do your acts of faithful service for? If you're doing them for the people around you, for fame, you will be disappointed. But if you do your acts of faithful service for Jesus, for the audience of your master, you will be remembered. Jesus reminds the disciples that judged her what was really going on. He says, you know, the poor you'll always have with you and you can help them anytime you want. And that's a true statement. As long as there are sinful people in this world, there will be people that will take advantage. There will be people that are in want. Jesus is not saying you always have the poor with you, so don't do anything about it. No, of course not. Jesus helped the poor. He stood up for the poor. He, he healed the poor and the sick. And he did this because God the Father commands it, his people, to take care of the poor. In fact, Jesus at this point is probably quoting Deuteronomy 15, 10 through 11 that says, give generously to the poor and do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. See, I think here the disciples were narrow-minded. They thought to give to Jesus, they would have to lose giving to the poor. I love what the Expositor's Greek Testament says here. Expenditure in one direction does not disqualify for beneficent acts in another. The willing-minded will always have enough for all purposes. They're saying you can do both. In fact, when you give to Jesus fully in your faithful act of service, whatever it is, you're also giving to the poor and to the people in need. In fact, when you give to Jesus, you're giving more to both. Jesus said you'll always have the poor with you, but you won't always have me. He's basically saying Jesus or to his disciples, um, disciples, you need to know the times. It's funny how quickly the disciples forget that they were in this exact situation back in chapter 2 of Mark, verses 18 through 20 in chapter 2. Here's the scene. Now Jesus' disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Or sorry, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast when he is with them? They cannot. So as long as they have him with them, but the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. See, back then the disciples, they were doing something that the, the world thought they shouldn't be doing. They were fast, they were feasting when people thought they should be fasting. Jesus corrected those people that were judging them. And he's correcting his disciples right now for doing the same thing. See, the disciples back then, they were acting rightly. They were feasting with their bridegroom, but they knew that a time was coming when fasting would be appropriate. They were doing what was right at the right time. And they need to be reminded right now that this unnamed woman, 
that was acting this way was paying attention to the time. She was doing what was right for right now. See, back then it was a time of feasting. Now, after he's come into Jerusalem, and we're in this final act of the story of Jesus before his death and resurrection, now is a time for preparation. The disciples were caught up in the expectations of the moment. It's Passover. We're just outside Jerusalem. Uh, We should be keeping our tradition of giving to the poor. Jesus says, know the times. Don't bother this act of, of faithful service that this unnamed woman has done. She is doing what is right for the time. Then Jesus reveals the truth of the time. He says, she did what she could. What beautiful words. She did what she could. It's not much in the grand scheme of things. It was one vial of perfume. Not much really, but it was what she could. There's a YouTube video right now featuring an artist named Ruth Oosterman. She has a two-year-old daughter, Eve. The two-year-old is not a particularly precocious artist. Here's some of her work. I think we have some on the screen, yeah. But her mother, Ruth, takes her paintings and turns them into this. Beautiful. This mom took what her daughter could do and made it into something spectacular. I've said this before. Ministry is doing what you cannot do with what you do not have because Jesus will do with what he has. This woman was, this unnamed woman was ridiculed by the disciples for wasting money. Jesus says she has done what she could. And now, watch, he's going to do with it something amazing. He translates this act into something spiritually spectacular. He says this anointing is performed beforehand for his burial. She did what she could with a little perfume. He's going to take this act of faithful service and give it meaning in the grand plan of God to save the world through the sacrifice of his son. This ritual of anointing happens quite often in the ancient Near East. It's used for many things, most common. It's a symbolic marking of a person. Someone is anointed with oil, in order to show some legal status change. So people were anointed with oil, say when a slave woman was uh, set free, when a bride was betrothed, when a vassal was deputized, they would anoint them with oil to show, to mark them as a, a change in legal status. And this went all the way up to the top. Priests were anointed with oil in order to demonstrate that they were uh, set apart for the service of God in the temple. Kings were anointed with oil uh, to, uh, as part of their coronation as they started their, their reign of the kingdom. In fact, Messiah means the anointed one, and it refers to this anointing to service. You'd expect that Jesus would say something like, this woman, she has anointed me ahead of time for my my coronation. That's what I would have expected. That, That she has anointed me so that I might demonstrate that I am Messiah who will save the world. 
That's what the disciples were looking for. They believed that Jesus the Messiah would usher in new freedom from Roman oppression and deliver the nation of Israel. But Jesus doesn't say that that's what this anointing is for. He says, this anointing is for my burial. That's grim news. Jesus Jesus has been saying over and over again for the past several chapters that he's going to Jerusalem, he's going to die, and um, that he's going to rise again. And the disciples never seem to get it. And they don't seem to get it here either. Because he's been anointed for burial. Jesus is going to die. That has to be the way. Listen to this. Before he can fulfill his role as Messiah Savior, he must fulfill his role as Messiah Sacrifice. Before Jesus can fulfill his role as Messiah Savior, he must first fulfill his role as Messiah Sacrifice. Isaiah 53 clearly shows this. It begins with a description of his suffering and death. Isaiah 53.3 says he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. First, the Messiah must be crushed and killed for us. Then, after he's been crushed and bruised, then there is victory over sin and death. Verse 10, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied, for he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Before there can be an anointed Savior of the world, there must be an anointed sacrifice. And this faithful act of service by this unnamed woman prepares Jesus' body to be that anointed sacrifice. Finally, Jesus acknowledges the faithful act of this unnamed woman in verse 9. Whenever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. This simple act of faithful service would be remembered forever. And ironically, the evidence is right here in the writing of Mark himself. The fact that he remembered this event, that Matthew and John remember this event as well, is proclaimed throughout the world, is evidence that Jesus said something again that was true. Now, interesting, the woman's name is unspoken by Mark, but the act of service to her king would go on and on. Simple acts of faithful service to our master Jesus are remembered by him and are used to proclaim the truth about him to the world. Simple acts of faithful service to our master Jesus are remembered by him and are used to proclaim the truth about him to the world. So keep doing those simple acts of faithfulness, no matter what the world says. Now we return to the scene that started this chapter. The Pharisees are looking for a way to kill Jesus. And here's Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, on his way to betray betray Jesus to them. The contrast here is stark. There's this unnamed woman who gives all she has in faithful act of service And we have this named traitor, Judas Iscariot, 
who makes a faithless bargain of betrayal. We have this unnamed woman who knows the time and anoints Jesus with, for burial with expensive perfume. Judas Iscariot, on the other hand, sells out his master for some money, 30 pieces of silver, according to the parallel uh, account in Matthew. The unnamed woman will be remembered for all time, wherever the gospel is proclaimed, who, to all who will hear it. Judas delights a few people in secret in hopes that no one will hear it. The comparisons are stark. See, the Pharisees wanted to get rid of Jesus, but they were afraid of a rioting crowd. Judas gives them a way to move up their timetable and take care of this troublemaker before things get out of hand. There's no reason given in the book of Mark for why Judas betrayed Jesus, and this has always troubled me. The Gospel of John... Uh, who has a very darker opinion of Judas, says that he was greedy. But Mark doesn't really say that. Uh, everyone in the room that night was judgmental about the unnamed woman breaking the alabaster vial. Everyone thought it was a waste. Perhaps Judas could see that the plans that he had for Messiah were not working out and were not coming true. Perhaps he'd been looking for a warrior king, and Jesus kept talking about dying, and, and he didn't like that. He didn't like how this was working out. We don't know why Judas was the way he was, and it's easy to look down at Judas. But I think the story of Judas is included not as a foil to Jesus, as much as a reflection for us of what could possibly be going on in our hearts of the people that follow Jesus, that follow Jesus around, but haven't followed him in, his, in their hearts. I think the author of Hebrews gives this warning to those who follow along, but don't enter in to relationship with Jesus. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 says, it's impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. I think this describes Judas in a nutshell. I think Judas betrayed Jesus because he had been close. He had seen the light. He had tasted the heavenly gift. He even saw the power of the Holy Spirit at work. He saw the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, but he never embraced it. He never gave himself to it. I read one commentator said, Judas never calls Jesus Lord. He always calls him uh, rabbi, teacher. Judas never embraces this message of Jesus. This unnamed woman and Judas, they, they shared similar experiences with Jesus. The Gospel of John's version of this story names this woman as Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. They were close friends. Uh, Jesus was so close to Mary that he wept with her when her brother died. Mary knew Jesus, and so did Judas. He'd walked miles with this man. As one of the twelve, he'd cast out demons in the name of Jesus. He watched Jesus heal the blind, teach the crowds, confound the wise. Judas and Mary had the same experiences or similar experiences with Jesus. But Mary, this unnamed woman that broke this vial of perfume to anoint her Savior, 
acts in faithful service. Judas, the named disciple of deceit, betrays him. When you get to this point of the story, you have to ask, which one are you? I think I want to be Mary. I think I want to be the one that gives all I have to Jesus. I want to be the one that does uh, nothing for the applause of others, but only for uh, the service of my master. I want to be like Mary. But if I'm honest, I'm often like Judas. I'm disappointed by how things are going. The world does not work the way that I want it to work. I see plans for my life not going the way that I want it to go, and and I don't want it to go that way, so I want to take things into my own hands. I care more about what other people think of me than about the acts of service that I do for my master. You know, if you can't be honest with yourself about where you are, there's no way that you can grow. Uh, Socrates said, know thyself, right? So take stock. Which are you? Or are you like me? You're a little of both. There's good news here. There is good news. The betrayer doesn't have to stay betraying forever. There is room back for faithful service with Jesus. See, there's another betrayer in the story that comes a little later. And I think whenever we think about Judas and his betrayal, we have to remember that Peter also betrayed Jesus. Peter would deny that he even knew him. Whenever I consider Judas, I have to think about Peter. What's the difference between those two betrayers? One never recognized his own betrayal. He never turns back to Jesus. He never acts in faithful service to him. And the other one does. The other one recognizes the shame of denying Jesus. He turns back in faith to Jesus. He asks for forgiveness. There's repentance and there's healing and then there is continued acts of service. Peter goes on to uh, proclaim the gospel around the world. Both of these men betrayed Jesus at the lowest point in his life. One turned away and hung himself. One turned to Jesus and was given forgiveness. See, there is hope. There is forgiveness. There would have been for for Judas. If he would have turned around and asked for forgiveness, he would have been accepted. But he didn't. There's hope for you, too. It's not too late. You, Jesus watcher, you've been a Jesus watcher for a while. Perhaps you've come to church, whether... uh, because you wanted to or because you had to. Uh, Perhaps you've been following along, you've been watching YouTube videos of preachers and you've been been trying to uh, see all of the things that are going on, but you're holding Jesus at at an arm's length. Today is the day when you can say, I turn to Jesus to recognize that you have been the betrayer. You have been the one that has tried to do it your own way. You've been the one that has tried to make it yourself and you've failed. And today is the day when you can say, Jesus, I accept your forgiveness. I turn to you in faith. It's not too late. There is rebellion, but
but there can be reconciliation. There's hope for you today. And there's good news, there's hope for me today too. And for people that are like me, who have said yes to Jesus, who have taken that step of faith and said, I believe that Jesus lived and died and rose again to save me from my sins. I believe this truth with all my heart, but the problem is I keep wanting to go back. I keep wanting to turn away. See, there's this fight in us, this fight against light and darkness that goes on in my very soul that, that makes me want to keep taking on for myself to solve my problems. There's hope for me too. The remedy is the same. Turn in repentance to Jesus. Turn away from your sin. Turn away from wanting to be in control. And embrace the Master and Lord that you did once before. Embrace Him again. Continue to do that. I think the Christian life is a constant recalibration of your life because we keep wanting to kind of veer off. You know, Jesus is right in front of us and we keep kind of looking over here, looking over there, getting just a little far off. And we have to repent, turn back to Him. Turn back and say once again, I am, I am giving you my all. I am giving you my act of service. I think Mark puts these two events side by side to highlight this stark contrast and to compel us to look in the mirror and make a choice. Which one are you going to be? There's this war raging in us, but God casts out darkness. Turn to Him like the unnamed woman did. Extravagantly give all you have. In just a few short days after this encounter, Jesus would be dead. The perfume would be for his burial. He would lay in a tomb. And three days later, he would rise to new life and bring healing and freedom from sin. He ascended to heaven and he is coming again. And with your act of faithful service now, today, you proclaim that truth to the world. So keep doing good in the name of the Savior. Keep foolishly giving yourself to Him and His ways. The world's going to tell you it's a waste. Don't listen to them. Do what you can. And Jesus will do with your act of faithfulness more than you can ever imagine. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this... Uh, faithful act of service that this unnamed woman did in the book of Mark. She did what she could. She did what she could, and Jesus, you did immeasurably more with that. She anointed you with oil, and you proclaimed that she anointed you for burial. And by your death and resurrection, we have life as well. I thank you for the faithful act of this unnamed woman. God, I know that in my own heart, I often act like Judas. I often want to take things into my own hands, and by doing that, I betray your true message. With my mouth, I proclaim that you are Lord and Savior, but with my heart, I turn away from you. God, today, I pray that I would turn back to you in faith.
once again uh, correct my error. Bring me back in line with you. I pray for my friends here who also uh, feel that, feel that tug to want to do things their own way. I pray, God, that you would remind them that their simple acts of faith are used by you to proclaim uh, the gospel throughout the world. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.